Welcome to Cleveland Clinic Cardiac Consult, brought to you by the Seidel and Arnold Miller Family Heart and Vascular Institute at Cleveland Clinic. In each podcast, we aim to provide relevant and helpful information for healthcare professionals involved in cardiac, vascular, and thoracic specialties. Enjoy. I'm Dr. Steve Nissen, and I'm here with one of our electrophysiologists, Dr. Dan Cantillon. Uh, Dr. Cantillon's been working for uh, some years now on advanced uh, approaches to monitoring, and we're going to talk about those for the next few minutes. So perhaps you could give us an overview of what it is that you've been doing and, and why is this significant? Sure. As you know, I serve as the medical director for the Central Monitoring Unit, which is an off-site facility that provides secondary monitoring for the Cleveland Clinic main campus and 10 additional regional hospitals. We provide around-the-clock, 24-7 monitoring, and we apply a a series of in-house, innovative uh, technologies and methods that we've developed to really get out front of decompensating patients by providing an advanced detection of those changes. Now this is remotely located. Mm-hmm. I would say this is something that in you know I think for most places would be very surprising that mm-hmm. uh, the, the the folks that are actually doing the monitoring are not actually here no. in the hospital. No, no, it's our bunker. It's our it's our command center. It's mm-hmm. a place where we can take a really extraordinary uh, workforce and we can remove them from the distractions of the hospital activities and noises to allow them to sort of concentrate and focus and with the support of our technologies and our risk stratification tools to uh, identify those patients that are at risk of decompensation and get out in front of those cardiac arrests, which is the key, as you know, to improving uh, uh, survival outcomes and resuscitation. Can you give us an idea about how many people you monitor on a given day? Yeah, it's really extraordinary. We are close to uh, a capacity of 2,000 patients uh, per day. And of that, we uh, run a census between 1,100 and 1,200 patients, depending on how busy the health system is in terms of its uh, beds. How many people are actually sitting in front of the monitors at any given time? Yeah, so, uh, you know, we have a, a workforce of maybe you know, a a dozen uh, uh, members. Uh, There are uh, technicians that provide uh, the direct coverage of the station, but then we have sort of lead technicians that sort of uh, serve in an oversight capacity, sort of watching the watchers. And so we have a unique uh, structure that we have in place to make sure that everybody is concentrated on the important work that's being done. How can a dozen people Mm-hmm. look after more than a thousand patients. Well, that, that's extraordinary. It is, it is, and that's where the technology comes in. As, yeah. as you know, we developed and validated and deployed a clinical algorithm that uh, serves to bring among these thousands of patients that we're monitoring to the attention of the technician only those few patients that require them to look at the chart, look at their ECG waveform, look at their vital trends, get an understanding of what's happening with them, and then make an intelligent phone call to the bedside nursing team and on a discretionary basis to our emergency response teams directly. So. What are the things that you're actually, what are the parameters you're actually measuring? Right, so there are three components to our algorithm. The first is the reason that the patient is being uh, put on the monitor. We take sort of the pretest probability of them having a cardiac event. So for example, is this somebody that's been transferred for another, from another hospital for coronary revascularization? Or are they being uh, admitted to the hospital for syncope? We know the specific event rates for each of these categories, and that goes in as a pretest probability. The second component 
are the changes in their vital signs, heart rate, blood pressure, respirations, pulse oximetry. And in that category, each patient is their own control because what we have is we have a moving average for that patient. And we look at the changes that are occurring in real time compared to that moving average, and we pick up on variations that warn us that that patient is moving in the wrong direction. So for example, yeah. somebody who's kind of uh, percolating along with a heart rate of 80, right. now all of a sudden their heart rate's 105. Yes. You're asking a question, what's going on? So the, the algorithm scores that and puts it into the equation. And then the third component are the nominal alarms that come from our vendors, the telemetry systems, the PVC alarms, those other things. We found that most of those are not clinically meaningful, but what we've done is we've broken them down and we've reclassified each of those alarm codes into what we have determined based on clinical evidence is the actual value of that alarm. So all three of those components go into the pot, and what happens is it comes up with a total priority risk score for that patient, and when it reaches a certain threshold, the patient's tile turns red, and that's what prompts the technician to open the patient, which then gives an expanded display that shows their live ECG waveform, their vital sun trending data. It opens our EMAR system so they can see laboratory test results. They can really sort of dive into the context of what's going on with that patient and why the algorithm triggered the alert. So the old-fashioned way of doing this is you sit there and you wait till somebody has ventricular tachycardia yes. and all of a sudden alarms are going off and everybody's running around. And it's too late. We know that in those circumstances when we wait until they've had ventricular tachycardia arrest, we are not very successful in resuscitating that patient. But if we get out front of it within an hour prior to that, we know based on the outcomes that we published in JAMA that we can achieve up to 93% uh, return of spontaneous circulation, which in the world of hospital medicine is, is unprecedented. So alarm fatigue is a huge problem in, in hospitals. So how good is this system? In other words, if you suddenly the tile turns red, yeah. What's the probability that there's something bad going on versus it being a false alarm? Yeah, so it's very high actually. We uh, find that uh, up to a third and even a half of our patients for whom the tile turns red, that there is an actionable event that requires the bedside team to do something different. Move the patient's level of care, make an adjustment in medication, uh, prompt the treatment team to do something different with their patient's management, order some tests. Uh, whereas conversely, if you look at the traditional alarm systems, we've compared our system to those traditional systems and it turns out that over 99% of those traditional alarms that are dinging constantly, if you walk into any hospital in America, more than 99% of those are inactionable, meaning they're alarming, but they're contributing to a background noise. And in that background noise, the true signal of the patient that requires our attention can become drowned out. Yeah, I have to admit that in a bygone era, we, the alarms have been going off and no one's paying attention, I right. mean, I, including the physicians, because there's so many alarms that you get this alarm fatigue and you just you tend to ignore them. I tell people that it, it's almost like walking into a casino. There's just so much noise pollution with all the, the sounds and, and that it just sort of desensitizes people and then you don't really uh, respond to any of those alarms. And that's really not what alarms are supposed to be. Alarms are supposed to identify the signal from the noise so that it alerts somebody that's able to do something about the problem to identify it and then provide an appropriate treatment. Now you've published on the the results of this work. Perhaps you could tell us a little bit about what those fi key findings were. The key findings were that in the situations where we do get out front 
of these events where our emergency response teams are deployed, we are able to achieve a 93% return of spontaneous circulation, which again, if you look at the American Heart Association statistics, uh, one in 10 patients will survive a cardiac arrest in the community, uh, one in four in a non-ICU hospital setting. So when you look at that, it really has been a paradigm shift in terms of what we can achieve. And as you know, this is just the beginning. As we get better and as we get smarter about advanced cardiac waveform analytics and really getting into the embedded signals within the ECG waveform, we think that we can do even better in terms of getting out front of these events. Right now, we uh, identify the decompensating patient about 80% of the time, meaning that about 20% of the time, we don't get in front of it. And of those, maybe 15, 16% are times when we just miss the signal and we're alerting simultaneously with what's happening on the unit, where the patient is in ventricular tachycardia, and we're sort of alerting simultaneous with what's happening uh, on the nursing unit. In these kind of bolt out of the blue events that yeah. weren't previously detected, is there a lower uh, likelihood of returning to to, to there is. Yeah. Uh, in those circumstances, we're really no better than the status quo. And so we see this as a scientific opportunity for us to really dive in and try to understand a little bit better about what are the subtle signals that we may be missing. And this is an area where we're looking at an exploratory way, uh, machine learning uh, techniques and technologies to help us identify those subtle patterns which uh, we may not be able to detect with sort of our human uh, type of uh, analytic uh, uh, thought. So let me think out loud with you. What sure. about something like uh, ST depression? Mm -hmm. Is that, is that yet part of your algorithm or will it become? It will become. Uh, we're looking at uh, sort of wavelet type recognition. The much in the same way, you know, a lot of the work that I've done in this space, Dr. Nissen, has been sort of inspired by the way that pacemakers and defibrillators can discriminate different types of arrhythmias, supraventricular arrhythmias, ventricular arrhythmias. And the way that a lot of these devices work is they use wavelet recognition. So they take a wavelet of a patient's uh, normal rhythm and they, they freeze that as a template and they compare that to dynamic changes that are occurring in real time. Much in the same way as I alluded to right now, the way our algorithm works is it takes vital signs changes for that patient against the template. So each patient's their own control. We believe that the same type of phenomena can occur for the ECG waveform. So we're looking at subtle changes with ST depression, ST elevation, QT prolongation, things that may be a warning sign that that patient is having a meaningful change in their clinical status but that doesn't achieve the status of a nominal vendor alarm system. That's really amazing. Now what about other vital signs? You know, uh, body temperature, yeah. things like that. You thinking about that too? We are, and, and we're measuring those things. And so in some units, like for example, we don't do just cardiac stuff. We actually do intracranial pressure monitoring for our neuro-intensive care units. And so the way this algorithm is constructed is that if we are measuring those variables, they go into the equation and they're part of the scoring system. But if we're not measuring uh, body temperature, if we're not measuring uh, intracranial pressure or pulse oximetry, those things drop out of the equation. And so what we're actually using Using then are the data elements that were given, which are heart rate and blood pressure for just about everybody. Now, uh, 
over the years in kind of doing this and working in an ICU myself, yeah. one of the biggest problems we have is that leads fall off of patients. Yes. How do you handle that problem? I'm glad you brought that up. That is a uh, thorn in our side. It is an Achilles heel of any successful monitoring program because um, it turns out that uh, last year we made over a half a million phone calls, believe it or not, for just the leads falling off and the telemetry interruptions, which is a major problem because we have to treat each and every one of those as a crisis because if the patient's uh, monitoring has been disconnected, they could have a true arrhythmia event and we, of course we won't see it because it's in our blind spot. So we have to call on uh, each and every one of those, but at the same time it gums up the airwaves with a lot of... Um, meaningless communication. It turns out that more than 99% of those calls are, you know, something that doesn't result in any uh, care uh, um, uh, change other than just putting the patient back in the monitor. And so we've done a lot of exploratory work in terms of looking at patch ECG monitors and other types of fixation mechanisms to try to solve this problem because, again, this gets back to the alarm fatigue, signal-to-noise ratio. When we're gumming up with a lot of these false uh, types of um, alarms that we're obligated to call on, we uh, lose our ability to focus on those subtle signals for the true patients that need our attention. What if you call and nobody answers the phone? We have a whole escalation policy. We have a protocol where it goes to the charge nurse, where then that goes to the nurse manager. Uh, there is a very structured way uh, that we do these things. And, you know, we've built all of that methodology, all of those workflows and all those things, we've built that in-house. And so if you look at that and you look at our training programs for our technicians, all of those things, we've grown those in-house at the same time that we've grown the technology and we've done the software development and all those types of things. So it's really been an extraordinary privilege for me to really be uh, at the center of this and, and developing all these things. So let me challenge you a little bit. What if the sure. cell phone system goes down? Yeah, we, I mean, you know, just like any technology, uh, your computer, your smartphone, uh, paging system, uh, we have outages, and those outages uh, leave us vulnerable. And so we have an emergency response system in place where we notify our hospital systems, our nursing wards. If we have downtime, we say, listen, uh, the CMU is down. Uh, right now, you're on your own. We'll notify you as soon as we get back up and they just have to pay a little bit closer attention to those patients at the bedside during that time. Well, you've really thought this through, and it's an, it's an amazing uh, thing to have 93% of these patients, you know, uh, actually survive mm -hmm. these events. So uh, congratulations thank on you the great much, work, and, and thank you all for joining us. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. We welcome your comments and feedback. Please contact us at heart at ccf.org. Like what you heard? Please subscribe and share the link on iTunes.